0: Funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.
1: Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, winter weather alerts issued in all 50 states. Flooding continues here in New Jersey with dangerous storms and blizzard like conditions spreading across the country. Plus, hearings into the deadly Port Newark fire continue. Federal investigators searching for what caused the deaths of two firefighters. Also heating up the race to replace New Jersey's embattled senior senator is on.
2: So that's the problem is that like, we don't have serious legislators. We don't have people that actually want to solve problems.
3: Immigration reform and the issue of the refugee crisis is a very personal issue to me. I am an immigrant woman. Uh, I came to the United States at 14 years old from El Salvador.
1: And was it a violation of the state's Crown Act? A referee removes a female student-athlete from the game because of her hair.
4: Above everything else, our student-athletes should be able to be their, be their best selves. I mean, they shouldn't have to change themselves in order to meet whatever standard uh, people believe they should meet in terms of what their hair should look like.
1: NJ Spotlight News begins right now.
0: From NJPBS studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Vinozzi.
1: Good evening and thanks for joining us this Friday night. I'm Brianna Vinozzi. Winter weather alerts were in place today for every state across the U.S., with high wind alerts in effect for more than 140 million people in the nation and an intense blast of cold weather making its way across the country to New Jersey. Now, that's expected to hit later this weekend or early next week, but first more rain. After a brief reprieve from the wet weather, residents in flood-prone areas are bracing for this latest storm. That'll bring with it up to an inch and a half of rain and 60-mile-per-hour wind gusts in some areas, especially along the shore, according to forecasters. They say the rain is likely to be heaviest overnight into tomorrow morning. The National Weather Service has issued a flood watch for 16 counties, along with multiple other winter weather warnings and advise for the state. All this while residents are still sopping up their basements and dealing with the flooding brought on from Tuesday's storm, while towns like Patterson and Wayne, well, they're just seeing the effects of that rainfall today, now that the Passaic River has finally crested. Either way, forecasters seem to agree the weather has been relentless. Investigative hearings continue into a dockside cargo ship fire at Port Newark last summer that killed two Newark firefighters. Today's testimony centered on the source of the blaze—a Jeep Wrangler that was being used to push hundreds of other vehicles on and off the ship—and according to experts, was part of a massive vehicle recall. Ted Goldberg has the latest.
5: The only thing we cannot disprove is a mechanical failure that is consistent with the recall condition as described by Chrysler.
6: The third day of hearings investigating last summer's deadly port fire zeroed in on the Jeep Wrangler that started the fire. ATF Special Agent Matthew Hartnett testified that his agency eliminated every other hypothesis as to how the fire started, blaming the start of the blaze on a defect in the engines of overworked Wranglers.
5: Causing transmission fluid to expel from the filler tube contacting a hot surface and suddenly catching fire this pusher
6: car was part of a recall issued by chrysler it stated that transmission fluid may overheat in certain driving conditions continuous operation under these conditions may cause the transmission fluid to boil over and come in contact with hot engine or exhaust components this could cause an underhood fire without warning the corrective action special agent hartnett wouldn't say fix was to alter the dashboard to notify drivers. So the corrective action was to install a warning lamp and a chime that says hot oil, but there was no, the corrective action didn't consist of any mechanical changes. It was strictly
5: a a warning light and alarm. That's correct.
6: The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives confirmed that the Jeep received the corrective action 14 years ago.
5: We did hear testimony that there were flaming fireballs dripping from the bottom of the vehicle. That's obviously consistent with a fluid burning since that was at the onset of the fire.
6: According to the owner's manual for that year's Wrangler, the solution for an overheated engine is to let it idle. But Lasher's testified earlier this week that the Jeep was placed off to the side and shut off. So if the Jeep overheated earlier in the day, it may not have cooled off.
5: When you shut a vehicle off, you're no longer using the vehicle's cooling systems and the temperature will elevate for a short amount of time.
6: A day earlier, shipmaster Alessandro Moretti explained why his crew fought the fire with CO2 instead of fire-resistant foam like some have suggested. Did you have a discussion with the chief mate about using the foam to in, in their initial efforts to fight the fire? No, makes no sense to use that one. Okay, and why is that? The foam need to be sprayed on some surface to, The foam is full of holes, holes for lashing. Moretti also says he warned the firefighters about their initial approach to fighting the flames. When the Shoreside Fire Department asked you to turn on, turn back on the ventilation system, did that raise any concerns for you? Yes. Please explain. I clearly asked them, you are sure? Because... If you are going to start the exhaust system again, the oxygen and the flow of air can start again the fire from the amber or from the heat. Today's hearing ended by describing how the fire spread through the ship and how firefighters responded to the flames. Multiple Newark fire officials are scheduled to testify next week when the hearings resume on Tuesday. In Union, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News.
1: We're now just a little more than four months away from the U.S. Senate primary in New Jersey, with an increasingly crowded field of Democratic contenders who are looking to unseat embattled senior Senator Bob Menendez. This week on Chatbox, senior political correspondent David Cruz spoke with two of the candidates, third-term Congressman Andy Kim, who was among the first to toss his hat in the ring and has already raked in millions of dollars in campaign support, and progressive labor leader and educator Patricia campos Medina. Cruz sat down with the candidates to find out how they'd tackle some of the most recent challenges facing our state.
0: Should uh, New Jersey uh, accommodate some of these people?
2: Well, look, what I'll first say is that, uh, you know, all across the country, what we're seeing, this is the result of the failure of the federal government side to be able to address comprehensive immigration reform. Now, we'll get to that. But that being said, you know, federal government should be able to then provide support to cities and states around the country that are facing this. Now, the challenge that we're facing, I mean, look, these are are, these are people. Uh, We are a nation that is always going to protect uh, the dignity and decency of people. At least, uh, you know, that's what we're we uh, should be doing. Uh, So, yes, you know, look, we need to provide some measure of support. But the challenge is that Uh, is that a lot of states, a lot of of cities, they haven't planned for this. They haven't planned for this level of of challenge. And that's what's causing the problem. And that's what's causing the squeeze. And that's where the federal government continues to drop the
0: ball. Has uh, the president failed on immigration? I mean, when this administration began, I think the first day or the second day of the administration was a big announcement about uh, reform to the, the country's immigration laws. And then since then, Crickets, uh, has has this administration failed on that issue?
2: Well, the way I sort of see this is that there's just been failure for decades on this with presidencies of both parties. Yeah. Uh, you know, so this is compiling and compounding, and, and that's what I find so frustrating. But let me tell you something that I've learned in my five years in Congress. A lot of the people that you hear from the most, you know, sniping and, and arguing about immigration and saber rattling that way, as I've talked to them there, it's become very clear to me that they don't actually want to solve this problem. You know, that's something that I find so frustrating, is that people that I work with, colleagues of mine that, that, that moan about this all the time, mm-hmm. When you actually try to confront them and say, well, let's see what we can get done. It becomes clear, to they don't wanna solve it because it's such a good political weapon to them. It's
0: too it's easy to, to fundraise yeah, off I mean, of they, that.
2: They want to scare the American people. They wanna use this to be able to point fingers and blame. So that's the problem is that like we don't have serious legislators. We don't have people that actually wanna solve problems.
3: Immigration reform and the issue of the refugee crisis is a very personal issue to me. I am an immigrant woman. Uh, I came to the United States at 14 years old from El Salvador. I was separated from my parents for eight years, waiting for resolution to to their uh, refugee request in the 1980s. So this is an issue that I have lived and know personally the impact that it has on families. Uh, I lived through family reunification. I lived through a a, a first period of crisis of uh, refugees uh, from Central America in the 80s. So I have... Uh, real solutions that I've been working for 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 a long time. We gotta remember that this country is founded by immigrants, and we have been we have the ability to uh, uh, invest in a better in a resettlement program for refugees once they have applied for political asylum. Remember, these refugees that came to New Jersey. I, are following the law. They have applied for political asylum and they are trying to be resettled. What we need to do is what Congress has failed to do for 30 years, and it's reform our refugee and political asylum laws and our immigration laws and fund a refugee resettlement program, so that when refugees are going through the process of resettlement, Uh, the federal government can work directly with states to provide them the support they need to provide services for resettlement. And frankly, if we don't want refugees to end up on, on, on homes or waiting to work, we actually need to give them a permit to work because it is part of something that Congress can do and the Biden administration do because while these refugees wait for political adjudication of their political asylum, they want to be together with their families, they wanna provide with their families and we have practical tools and solutions that we can get done but Congress needs to act, needs to fund resettlement programs and they actually need to reform our refugee laws.
0: That. Uh- Uh, is not too dissimilar from what other Democrats and some Republicans have said, but the the crisis is now. Um, New Jersey doesn't get any federal funding for uh, resettlement efforts, but there are going to to become instances where people want to be here, will stay here physically. What responsibility uh, does the state have
3: uh, for providing help for them? New Jersey is the fourth largest recipient of immigrants in this country. We are a very diverse state from, uh, from immigrants from all over the country. We have the resources to provide resettlement. That doesn't mean that we don't need additional help from the federal government or better coordination from the federal government.
1: You can watch the full interviews with Representative Andy Kim and Patricia Campos-Medina on Chatbox Saturday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. on NJPBS. And on Reporter's Roundtable, David talks with Senator Dick Cody, who retired this year after over 50 years in New Jersey politics. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10 a.m. on NJPBS. One North Jersey school district is filing a bias complaint against the state after referees disqualified a student-athlete from playing in a girls' basketball game because of her hair beads. The South Orange Maplewood School District alleges the decision was a form of racial discrimination and in violation of New Jersey's Crown Act, which was put in place to prevent incidents like this against people of color from happening. Melissa Rose Cooper has the story.
4: Above everything else, our student athletes should be able to be their be their best selves. I mean, they shouldn't have to change themselves in order to meet whatever standard uh, people believe they should meet in terms of what their hair should look like.
7: So Kevin Gilbert, acting superintendent of the South Orange Maplewood School District was in disbelief after learning a student was disqualified from a basketball game last week for wearing beads in her hair.
4: The coach uh, protested a little. Said, you know, this doesn't. This isn't right. Uh, but he went on and told the young lady that she could not play, uh, based on what the referees had said. And so he also went and talked to our athletic director, uh, Mr. Rich uh, Profito. And Rich uh, immediately went and got the rule book. The, the student athlete was disqualified for the entire first quarter. Uh, at the end of the first quarter, our athletic director pulled the referee to the side and showed them what the rule was that the young lady could play. All she had to do was secure those beads in place.
7: That's when Gilbert says the student was allowed to get back in the game. But at that point, the damage had already been done.
4: The word she gave me was wow. She said, you know, this above everything else that's going on. It was totally, you know, this is just, you know, another one of those things that, you know, she could not believe. Uh, She has to, she had to go through.
7: The school district has since filed a bias complaint with the New Jersey State Interscholastic Athletic Association for violating the Crown Act. The legislation was passed in the Garden State in 2019, a year after then 16-year-old Andrew Johnson was told he needed to cut his locks or face disqualification from his wrestling match.
2: I've had three daughters and I've had to take beats out of my daughter's own hair to play soccer several years ago. And so I know the embarrassment, the anger that I had having to do that, even with the fact we had covering for her back then.
7: James Davis heads the South Orange chapter of the social justice group Black Parents Workshop. He agrees here discrimination is wrong, but believes this incident may have been due to a lack of proper communication.
2: In sports, there are rules around safety. And one of the rules regards things like jewelry, Earrings, nose rings, uh, and beads in your hair. And so players are required to cover them before playing. And for whatever reason, uh the team's coaches, the referees did not notice the student had beads
4: during warm-up. That's the reason why the rule is you have to secure them, right? Because they could come out and they could create some issues, but you don't disqualify the athlete.
7: According to the NJSIAA, the rules were updated in 2022, allowing athletes to wear hair adornments like beads as long as they are securely fastened to the head and do not present an increased risk to the player teammates or opponents. In response to last week's incident, a spokesperson confirming in a statement NJSIAA's legal counsel alerted New Jersey's Division on Civil Rights. In addition, NJSIAA has contacted everyone involved and is awaiting responses. Members of the South Orange Maplewood School District say they look forward to the results of the investigation. They hope this incident will teach others the importance of the Crown Act so something like this doesn't happen again. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper.
1: In our Spotlight on Business report, the state's loss of a major offshore wind project with Orsted doesn't appear to be slowing down other development ideas. Rutgers University today hosted an event with scientists from the school and other universities across the state to share budding ideas, including, get this, creating floating wind turbines and farms, all as tall as the Eiffel Tower. Senior Correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports. Rutgers
8: researchers want to develop floating offshore wind turbines like Highwind, the world's first floating wind energy farm. The structures ride big waves 18 miles off Scotland's coast. At an offshore wind symposium today, Rutgers revealed it'll explore building a new warehouse-sized lab facility somewhere down the Jersey Shore to design and test floating wind turbines, each one almost as tall as the Eiffel Tower.
5: So this is technology that's required for facilities that would be deployed in water too deep to have a more traditional monopile or jacket style foundation. Uh, And so these are targeted in areas well offshore of New Jersey, uh, where the shelf break drops off.
8: It's an evolving technology. The tall monopiles are connected underwater to heavily weighted floating platforms. Those get tied to the seabed with steel cables. European developer Equinor notes 80 percent of ocean wind energy potentials located farther offshore, putting them potentially out of sight and away from clamming fisheries.
5: These deeper deployments off New Jersey would be further offshore beyond viewshed uh, issues that, that might be faced along the coast. So that is one, one benefit um, from that community's perspective. When Rutgers
9: and the state announced that we're going to have a testing facility uh, advocating the advance of wind energy uh, programs. That's tremendous.
8: Senator Bob Smith heads the Environment and Energy Committee. He says Jersey has fallen behind other states in the rush to develop offshore wind energy, especially after the Danish firm Orsted canceled two fixed offshore wind projects here, citing high costs and supply chain problems. Offshore wind energy opponents in New Jersey cheered. Meanwhile, wind farms off Massachusetts and New York coastlines fired up this month.
9: Shame on us. Shame on Orsted. Massachusetts uh, as a leader. New York State as a leader. And we want to be leaders too. And as a matter of fact, we put hundreds of millions of dollars into a wind port in the southern part of the state.
10: Offshore wind is an incredible catalyst for economic growth. There's an uh job creations and tens of thousands of family-sustaining jobs, uh, business investment, port development. This is, we're building a supply chain and
8: industry here. Offshore winds also a big component of Governor Murphy's goal, 100% clean energy by 2035. But the companion clean energy legislation still bogged down by special interests. Smith says getting that passed remains his top priority. In this new legislative session, he sees global warming as an accelerating crisis.
9: If we don't get our Wind Energy Act together, we're not going to be here. All right. The, all the news that you're hearing that we have had the hottest year in 125,000 years, it's all true.
8: The Rutgers concept for a floating wind turbine test lab plus a smaller companion facility at its New Brunswick campus are still in the idea stage, funded by a million-dollar Chancellor's Grant. But four deep-ocean floating wind farms already operate around the world, and the U.S. Department of Energy is eager to develop them off American coastlines. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News.
1: ON WALL STREET STOCKS EDGED HIGHER TODAY AS TRADERS STARTED SIFTING THROUGH THE FIRST BATCH OF FOURTH QUARTER EARNINGS. HERE'S HOW THE MARKETS CLOSED. AND TUNE IN THIS WEEKEND TO NJ BUSINESS BEAT WITH RAVEN SANTANA. SHE'LL BE ASSESSING THE HEALTH OF NEW JERSEY'S HOUSING MARKET, INCLUDING THE OUTLOOK FOR HOME PRICES AND MORTGAGE RATES AND HOW BUYERS CAN PREPARE TO NAVIGATE THE DIFFICULT MARKET. WATCH IT SATURDAY AT 5PM AND SUNDAY MORNING AT 930 ON NJPBS. on the iconic HBO mob series The Sopranos, you're only as good as your last envelope. And in New Jersey, diehard fans are only as good as the trivia and quotes they can spout from the series. So in honor of the television show's 25th anniversary, a local media company offered a tour across North Jersey, featuring stops at some of the most notable landmarks from the show. And our senior correspondent Joanna Gagas got to hop on board.
4: I'd like to propose a toast to my family.
10: It's been 25 years since the first episode of The Sopranos graced our screens, and yet for fans old and new, the magic of the show has carried on all these years later.
6: Satriales, that's right, Satriales, very good. Uh, yeah, this is where uh, the Satriales building used to be.
10: Just ask this group who got to tour several of the filming locations around New Jersey yesterday.
0: Probably i I'll maybe 25 times to watch it from start to finish.
10: Some on this tour came all the way from the UK, a testament to the global reach of a show that focused on Italian-American mob life in North Jersey and New York in the early 2000s, with a mob boss who was secretly going to therapy for panic attacks. A pretty groundbreaking idea for the time when therapists were still referred to as shrinks and the complexities of emotion had little place in organized crime.
6: I like to call this the FBI park because for some reason they like to have meetings with FBI agents uh, whenever a character turns FBI informant. This
5: little alleyway we see in uh, season two, Big Pussy's meeting his FBI handler, Skip. It was such a time capsule of an era of like this fading mob scene that was gone and they're trying to keep it alive and it was just on life support. John
10: Kaplan is a new fan of the show, Jeez. proof that the intense storyline and cinematography stood the test of time to reach a whole new generation of viewers.
2: I'm on its first season, it's very good so far.
6: The reason it's survived I think because it's also been very controversial, um, not just the ending but also throughout the show, it's been willing to push the envelope and uh, really test Test the, the limits of TV because uh, David Chase, when he created the show, he wanted to be a filmmaker. And you can sort of see the way that The, the Sopranos is filmed. It's more like they're more like one, one hour movies as opposed to uh, a TV show.
10: John Filippo led the tour through parts of Kearney where many episodes were filmed.
6: It used to be called the Irish American Association of Kearney, New Jersey. It's used as a club. They actually make it up to be the Italian American Association of Kearney, New Jersey. To
10: the infamous Bada Bing, the gentleman's club where Tony held court, actually called Satin Dolls on Route 17 in Lodi to Bloomfield's famous Holston's Ice Cream Shop for some onion rings, a nod to the final scene that was filmed here. The show forever changed Holstons says General Manager Carl Schneider.
6: Pre-Sopranos we were famous, post-Sopranos we were infamous. That's what it came down to basically, yeah. Um, popularity really just exploded.
10: Fans got to share in a little slice of that infamy.
6: We could say, yeah, I've been there, I've sat in that seat.
4: I've watched the show probably five times in total. It's, it's got to be my favorite show of all time.
10: Is this a bucket list item right here, sitting in that booth? Uh,
4: but yeah, it is <laughs> indeed, yes.
10: 25 years later, The Sopranos series ending is still one of the most controversial, one of the most speculated, talked-about TV series endings ever. Spoiler alert here, if you still haven't seen it, people still argue about what happened here in this booth.
4: I think probably Tony ended up getting shot by the guy who went in the bathroom.
6: I think no, but if I watch it again, I might have a different opinion. Yeah, he probably died. I think that that was his last supper.
9: No, there's no way a professional gangster head of a mob family is going to let someone walk into a restaurant, not notice him, and then go to a bathroom and be shot. Tony would have been strapped. He would have seen him. He's still alive. He's out there somewhere.
10: Sadly, actor James Gandolfini, who played Tony, died in 2013. But, like his character, he lives on in the hearts and minds of all those who still love The Sopranos. In Bloomfield, I'm Joanna Gagas,
1: Spotlight News. And that's going to do it for us tonight. But don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venose for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. We'll see you right back here Monday night.
0: NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation.
10: Our future relies on more than clean energy. Our future relies on empowered communities, the health and safety of our families and neighbors, of our schools and streets. The PSEG Foundation is committed to sustainability, equity, and economic empowerment, investing in parks, helping towns go green, supporting civic centers,
1: scholarships, and workforce development that strengthen our community.